You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We've talked a lot here about no new roads, about the expansion of our transportation system, and how we've, in many ways, overbuilt a very provocative book out recently from one of my professors at graduate school, a guy named David Levinson, a guy who is uh, not only a civil engineer, but teaches at the planning school, the Humphrey Institute at the University of Minnesota. He and a fellow professor, Kevin Kreisick, have written a new book called The End of Traffic and the Future of Transport. It is uh, very accessible, very readable, and quite provocative. I have Professor Levinson on the phone today. Professor Levinson, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. I know you say in the introduction that you wanted to write a book that would be read by more than just college students and kind of the intellectual elite that typically deal in this kind of arena. Talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this and the approach that you and Kevin took to putting this together. I've been interested in the future of transportation for a while. What inspired me to write this was that I had written a blog post basically on the future of transport, particularly the one that's been as a sort of revised as a postscript of this book, which goes to the 2030 and sort of looks backward. And the title of the post was on the end of traffic and, you know, where did traffic go? And what happened to traffic is an interesting question if you're thinking about this from the future, if we don't have traffic. And I wrote it for my blog, The Transportationist, and it was the most popular post I'd ever written. And so it's like, oh, there must be something to this. And sort of my comment on it, my first is that, well, if I'd thought about this you know, and that it would be so popular, I would have written it more carefully. And then it occurred to me that if I'd written it more carefully, it wouldn't have been so popular. <laughs> right. and so this is clearly something people are interested in. And transportation has been changing in the last few years in a way that it hasn't changed in the 50 years prior to that. You know, since the interstate highway system, we've been on this trajectory and we built, you know, we were building the interstates, then we built the interstates, then we maintained the interstates and the sort of, well, that's our steady state. And then along come internet and mobile telecommunications and information technology and automated vehicles are coming and we can start seeing that now and electric vehicles are coming and we can start seeing that now. That suggests that our future isn't going to be in this steady state that we've been used to for the last few decades. And so what is it going to look like? And so we try to explore um, some of those ideas, looking at how vehicles change and then how does that affect traffic and then how does that affect what we need to do with our infrastructure. And so I'm coming at this from the perspective of being a civil engineer. So I think about transportation as being an infrastructure-based problem. Mechanical engineers think about transportation as a vehicle-based problem. And we need to fuse those ideas because they're not interrelated, but they've been divorced. They're interrelated, but they've been divorced for so long. You know, the, the different fields sort of work on their own trajectories and assume that the other field doesn't make any changes. But now at least one of those fields, you know, the vehicle side is making changes. The service side how do we use vehicles is changing with information technology, which you can think of as the computer science people, the electrical engineers. This is going to have effects on civil engineering. Even if, even if roads don't change quickly, they will change in how we use them. And in places like Minneapolis, we can start to see how we're using roads differently now than we did 10 years ago. We're starting to set up more 
bike lanes, more bus lanes, things like that, which are taking the same pavement space, but allocating it differently. I want to ask you a civil engineering question because often the projects that we work on in the engineering profession not only take years, sometimes decades to develop, but we're projecting out decades into the future for usage. You know, the St. Croix Bridge is kind of the big poster child here in our state of a project with a 50 year traffic projection and, you know, demand kind of going out into the future. How, how does the implications of what you put in this book and some of the observations you've made have to that aspect of the civil engineering perfection, kind of the long, the long wind up and the long trajectory of the stuff that we do. I got into transportation. My first real job was as a travel demand modeler in Montgomery County, Maryland. So I'm, I worked with the forecasting models that were used at the time. And the more I worked with them, the more skeptical I became of their ability to you know, make accurate forecasts about the future, not because necessarily because the modelers are doing anything underhanded or evil or like that, but just because there's a lot of uncertainty. And the models are very good at giving you a deterministic answer. That's what they're designed to do. And we use them to size the interstate, and that's why they were developed back in the 1950s. And we've made some methodological improvements since the 1950s. I don't want to think, you know, to say that there's been no change in the field, but it's been relatively slow. I mean, in the 1950s, this was the highest of high technologies. They were using mainframe computers back when mainframe computers were brand new. They were employing hundreds of people in forecasting agencies to get the data together to do these forecasts. And that's greatly slimmed down. For instance, the Met Council's got two people doing travel demand forecasts, whereas instead of the dozens and, and hundreds that might have been involved when these models were first being set up. And the models are better in some ways. You know, they, they're more detailed. They more try to get a better sense of the behavioral representation of what's happening in the most recent survey. So, for instance, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul, they did a survey in 2011, and they've estimated a recent model based on the 2011 data, which has different rates of trip making than the model that was previously estimated based on the 2001 data, which has different rates of trip making based on the model that was estimated on 1990 data. But it's basically assuming that people in the future are going to behave like people do today, which, you know, sort of in the absence of other information isn't the worst assumption that you can make. You know, you could assume that people would make no trips and that would be silly. Or you could assume that people will make 10 times as many trips and that would be silly. But on the other hand, we also know that there are going to be changes and we're not accounting for any of those changes. There's no assumption of any behavioral changes aside from that caused by changes in land use and changes in the network structure. There's no assumptions about changes in technology, which, you know, 40 years ago wasn't a terrible assumption. But, you know, if we look back 40 years, you know, the car today resembles the car of 40 years ago reasonably well. I mean, there's more trucks than cars than there used to be. But same type of structure, people own their cars. What it looks like in 40 years or 30 years I think is wide open and making the assumption that it's going to behave like it does today. The future is going to behave like people behave today, I think is missing a lot. And we know from history that the forecasts have not been terribly accurate in the past. I did a retrospective study a few years ago where we looked at the forecasts that were done in the 1970s and 80s, predicting traffic levels in the 1990s, you know, the 1980s and 1990s and the early 2000s. And we have that, these actual traffic counts today. So we know how accurate those forecasts were. And the answer is they weren't terribly accurate. And in fact, they tended to underestimate freeway traffic. 
And if you think about this in a growth process, that's not terribly surprising. If you think about sort of technology deployment is following an S-shaped curve, an S-shaped deployment curve. So there's a long period of birth, you know, where you're sort of developing the technology, the rates of growth are fairly slow in an absolute sense. And then it picks up like an exponential curve for a while. And the percentage growth stays the same, but the magnitudes increase at an increasing rate because the base over which that percentage is applied is increasing. So if you double every year, you're increasing, you know, the first year you have one, the second year you have two, the third year you have four, the magnitudes of the, of the doubling are increasing, even if the percentage is, you know, the same. Right. And that doesn't go on forever. That goes on for a while. And then the saturation sets in. Everybody who wants to make a trip is making a trip. Everyone who wants to own a car owns a car. We only have 24 hours in a day. We're only going to travel 60 to 90 minutes a day. So there's only so much travel we can physically do. And then once we're doing all of that travel by automobile, given that automobiles travel at a certain speed on roads that are built to serve that speed, the rate of growth has to slow down. And so while the forecast in the early years underestimated the amount of traffic because they were doing straight line extrapolations, in the later years, they overestimated traffic because they were doing straight line extrapolations. Right. So now we see that growth has flattened. Total travel demand is flat for more than a decade now. You know, per capita, it's down some. This isn't, shouldn't be surprising. It, it is surprising, but it shouldn't be surprising because it sort of follows a natural technological deployment path that we see in tech, all sorts of technologies. We've just never in practice applied this to transportation. I mean, not to say that people haven't thought about it because people have thought about it, but it, they've been mostly academic types of discussions and the people in practice say it's been growing at X per year. It will continue to grow at X per year out into the future without any causal structure behind that. Now, there may be causes that would cause traffic to grow more in the future. Automated vehicles might cause traffic to grow in the future in some ways. Continued suburbanization, exurbanization of the population might cause traffic to grow. But then there are also offsetting factors which might cause traffic to contract some. And we need to think about both of those things when we're thinking about the future. And right now, we're not really thinking about either of them in a systematic way in our forecasting processes. And this is true throughout the U.S. I mean, I don't want to pick on the modelers in the Twin Cities or any particular city because this is a systematic problem, not a not a local problem. It seems like we have just on a maybe a cultural level equated traffic growth with economic growth. And looking back, I can understand why that is because the two were closely correlated for a while. But it seems like we veered off a little bit, and maybe it was the, the 2004 inflection point, or maybe it happened earlier than that. Is peak car, this notion that we're going to be driving less, more of a function of, of what you just said, where we've reached the point in the S-curve where everybody who wants to take a trip can take a trip, and we can't like literally induce any more? Or are there other kind of broader trends? People talk about the millennials wanting something different and boomers not driving in different ways. And, or is it a factor of, of all that kind of put together? Yeah, it is a combination of factors. And certainly, you know, if you think about the trucking industry, there's, there is an economic relationship between economic activity and truck miles traveled. You know, I mean, and we can see that in the economic graphs, much more so than on the passenger side of things. But there's also a limit to how much stuff we can have, you know, and it's not just, you know, that we have a limited amount of money to buy stuff with. I mean, there's just only oh, so much time to consume things. That's blasphemous. Is a limit to how much stuff we can have? 
I physically cannot spend <laughs> enough time shopping to buy stuff. I mean, there's just limits. That and seems then so it, un-American. <laughs> yeah. But then also think about our stuff is getting smaller, the stuff that we care about. I mean, we care about cell phones. And think about the size of a cell phone today versus what it looked like in um, 1987 or whenever the movie Wall Street came out and all the jerks on Wall Street had their personal cell phones that were giant car phones the size of a briefcase. Right. And now, you know, it fits in the palm of your hand. And it can't be much smaller because our hands come in a certain size. You know, it can be a little bit larger. So the iPhone plus is a little bit larger than the iPhone, but it's not, you know, we're not carrying a laptop and sticking it next to our ears. Right. So stuff gets, you know, reduced in size. Cars are lighter than they used to be. So, I mean, we're dematerializing a lot of things in subtle ways. And, you know, some of it is, well, you say, well, they're not built the same way as they used to be. Houses are probably lighter than they used to be. And that's engineering efficiency. And if we can use engineered wood instead of um, yeah, yeah. unengineered wood, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not built as well, but it's a lot lighter and we can afford more of them. And so that's a good thing because we're making things more efficient. And so there's this trade-off. And, you know, there's a great question from Buckminster Fuller, you know, who asked this, I mean, I don't remember when he asked it in the, you know, probably the 1940s or 1930s, but it was how much does a building weigh? I mean, and nobody knows how much a building weighs because we don't put buildings on scales and you don't ever sort of add up how much all the components of a building weigh. But my guess is that the same size house today is a lot less heavy than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Now, of course, houses, houses have sort of countering this trend. Houses are bigger and we have more space per person in houses than we did 30 years ago. So some things are still growing. But the stuff that we ship, you know, we're trying to figure out how to ship things more efficiently. And so we're getting some material out of this. We're getting some volume out of the system. But freight, freight continues to grow. And, and we've got the substitution going on is we go out to shop less and we have stuff delivered to us more. That's an important travel behavioral shift that isn't captured by the models that this will continue. I mean, the models will assume that people in 20 years will make the same number of shopping trips that they made in 2011. We know that from 2001 to 2011, people have been making fewer shopping trips. And we have reason to believe that in the future, they'll make fewer shopping trips still. Not that people will never go shopping for anything, but they won't go shopping for everything. And so this, we see this rise. You know, it's a, it's a long process. But, you know, 25 years ago, 0% of commerce was e-commerce because there was no such thing as e-commerce. There was some small amount of catalog commerce and you buy some things via catalog and have it shipped to you by mail. And now it's on the order of eight to 10% of all the things that you get are shipped via e-commerce. And there are lots of things that you get now that I don't want to say you don't pay for because I don't know, you know, who's downloading music and how they're downloading movies. But there's a lot of things that we're just not physically buying anymore that are available to us essentially for free on the internet that don't require delivery. You know, the newspaper isn't physically delivered to lots of people the way it used to be. Um, Movies aren't. You don't go to the video store for VHS. You don't go out to the movie theater. It comes delivered straight to your TV. You know, books, my book gets delivered to you as an ebook. And so you get it. It shows up on your phone and there's no physical material and there's electrons moving, but there's no physical material that's moving through the, the freight flow system. And so that's a difference in selected commodities that are easily digitized like movies and books and music but that is happening in a different scale with other types of things and we can start to think about well why do we produce things you know at one factory on the other side of the world and have it shipped to us and well we do that because costs are lower so you can think about 
you know, the iPhone, where is it produced? It's made in China or Taiwan and it's assembled there and then shipped over the, to North America and the rest of the world by airplane. And there's a lot of economies of scale there, but the economies of scale are because in part because the labor costs in China are, are lower than they are in the U.S., which is certainly true, but isn't going to be true forever. A lot of that work is getting automated. And then if it's automated, it can locate anywhere, right? So if robots are manufacturing robots in the United States aren't going to get paid more than robots in China. Well, not until they rebel. Um, <laughs> And until the rate robot rebellion, then we can have manufacturing everywhere, which has all sorts of effects on the labor market. But from a transportation perspective, if we have manufacturing at multiple sites, it reduces the amount of shipping that we're doing. And so we need to think about how these processes are going to play out. And I don't want to claim to have all the answers. I just want to raise a lot of questions that, A, in terms of forecasting, we don't know what's going to happen. And B, that there's a lot of opportunities for it to be a lot less it results in a lot less travel demand, a lot less freight demand than we have now. And so we don't have to have as much shipment because you don't have to move things the first 12,000 miles because you can manufacture it. You know, maybe there's a, an, an iPhone factory in every state. You know, there'll still be factories that make this, but if it's a robot that does this and you can manufacture the parts locally, you know, maybe the economies of scale go away or maybe the economies of scale are only for certain parts, but not for the final assembly. And so there's this whole set a combination of things that are going to play out, which will make the future look very different than, than the past has. When I talk to our fellow civil engineers and I say things like, we really don't know what's going to happen in the future and we really can't project things out and we, you know, we, we shouldn't be making these massive investments on just an increase in today's reality. They kind of look at me like, okay, I get what you're saying. There's some logic to it, but What's the alternative? I'd like you to maybe answer that question. What would a system where we don't know what's going to happen look like? How would we as engineers, as designers of places, as people making investments, you know, literally billions of dollars of investments a year in a certain type of transportation system, what should we be doing differently after we acknowledge that we don't know what the future is going to be and it, it could likely be quite radically different than today? And what we do will shape what, I mean, the decisions that we make about investments will shape what the future looks like to some extent as well. So exactly. keep yeah. that in mind, right? If you build the bridge across the St. Croix River, you will induce more development in Wisconsin than you would have if you did not build that bridge. So some of that demand will be there because you built the bridge. And that's demand that would not have been somewhere else. And that of itself is neither good nor bad, but might have adverse side effects, which, you know, more travel has costs that we need to consider. Right. So what does it look like if we don't, you know, if you don't build the bridge? People don't make that trip. There's a lot of people who are in the road building industry whose job is to build roads, but we have a large network already and the additions that we're making to this network are pretty small compared to the size of the network as a whole. So from a societal benefit point of view, we're not getting a lot of benefit these additions. All the all low-hanging fruit has been picked in this regard. All the roads that had really high benefit-cost ratios have already been built because they had really high benefit-cost ratios. They were the easiest to build. They had the most benefits and the lowest costs. And what we're stumbling with now are projects that barely, if, if at all, have a benefit-cost ratio about one, barely, or maybe below one. So they shouldn't be built. What happens as the result of the road not being built? Well, then, if you don't build that bridge, people don't move to Wisconsin. Okay. If you're a landowner in Wisconsin hoping to make money on real estate, this is a bad thing. If you're 
a landowner in Minnesota hoping that more people would live in Minnesota instead of Wisconsin, your rents will go up. It's mostly a transfer. And we can still make much better use of the network that we have rather than building ex- extensions to it in most places. We have a lot of excess capacity on our, on our road network today. And, you know, not necessarily at rush hour in the most congested places in the peak direction, but in most places we have a lot of excess capacity. Second, think about how the technologies are going to interplay with capacity. And so something like driverless cars, which, which are coming, and they're coming in, hopefully in my lifetime, in your lifetime, and they're already on the road in, in California, and certainly they're test cars, but they are driving, and they're driving fairly safely. What do they do to capacity? Well, they use the capacity that's available much more efficiently. So they basically, they're, they're increasing our throughput which means even less need for additional roads. I mean, even if those weren't coming, we wouldn't really need additional roads with flat demand. But now we've got something that's taking our existing capacity and using it more efficiently, which is another argument against building more capacity. We can use the capacity we have better, and we should be looking at how are we going to do that. Now, that's not going to show up in the models because the models are going to assume that the capacity in 20 years is exactly the same as the capacity today for the same road. Um, but if you were to double all of that capacity in 20, 25 years, you know, so my timeline is on the order of 2040 for when you get, you know, automated vehicles being essentially all of traffic. If you double your capacity, you know, and you do less than double your population, and we're not expected to double our population in 25 years. I mean, at most, a place like Minnesota is going to increase its population by about 25%. Then we should have a lot of excess capacity, more than we have today. And so that says don't build any more capacity. Right. And so the people who are in the construction business, that doesn't mean that they have to go out of work. What it means is that instead of building additional roads, they should be rebuilding the roads that we have because the roads that we have are, in many cases, not in very good shape. Now, this is a financing problem and a technology problem. You know, society has enough money that we could make our roads more, you know, in higher quality. Um, there was a article yesterday and it was by Larry Summers, who pointed out that maintaining our roads properly, you know, essentially rebuilding our existing roads is a free lunch because we're going to lower the costs of our automobiles by our automobiles being damaged less because our roads are in better condition. But it's coming out of a different pocket. So one is my personal pocket, and I'm paying for car repairs because roads are in bad shape. And the other is society's pocket because society is responsible for paying for roads. This is a, a funding problem and a financing problem that if we managed our networks better, if we thought about them as a public utility with a user pays principle rather than as a branch of government, we would get to a better situation there. You know, we don't complain much about electricity. We expect it to be on and it's on almost all the time. We complain about congestion. Why is that? Well, because the way we manage our roads, we give it away. You know, we don't charge people more during peak times. And so people use it on a first-come, first-served basis, and they overuse it because they're not paying for their full costs. With electricity, people are paying for their costs. And, I mean, some places have time-of-use pricing, um, generally not so common in Minnesota, but it's common in, in some other parts of the world and some other states in the U.S. And we have time-of-day pricing in lots of different utilities and lots of different services. I mean, from movie theaters and restaurants to, you know, natural gas and electricity to telecommunications and, you know, you pay less for your phone when you've made a phone call in the evening and on the weekends than you would during peak, peak times. Now they've built such a large capacity, they don't make those distinctions as much anymore. 
But those kinds of pricing systems are designed to manage demand and to encourage people who at the margins to drive or to use the phone when it's less, when the network's less busy or in the case of road pricing to drive when the network is less crowded. And that would manage our system better still. And so if we did that combined with getting technological improvements in vehicles, which allow them to use capacity more efficiently, combined with the fact that there's only so many people who are only going to be making so many trips and they can replace a lot of trips with information technology and substitution of delivery for shopping and things like that, we've got enough capacity out there to serve our demands in the U.S. for a long time in most places. I don't want to say everywhere, but in most places. You mentioned by 2040, you think we'll have, that's kind of the year you're shooting at, at saying we're going to be primarily autonomous vehicles or, or self-driving vehicles. I've kind of poo-pooed the notion. I de- had this debate with Randall O'Toole a few weeks back, and he, he had this, what I call the fetish about autonomous vehicles. And, and I see people a lot of times talking about them as if they're going to change the world. Like I can summon a car and it will come and pick me up and bring me somewhere. And I said, well, how, how is that in an urban area much different than a taxi? Yet you describe a lot of ways in which a fleet of autonomous cars operating kind of ubiquitous around the country would have dramatic changes on things. Would you care to talk about that at all? Sure. So the effects of autonomous vehicles on, on cities and suburbs versus exurbs and rural areas and small towns are all different. Okay, so the market matters here. And so if you think about Manhattan today, yeah, you can summon a taxi and there'll be one there. You know, you just go out into the street and hail one and, and one will show up in, you know, a minute or two. Today, you go to your cell phone, you summon an Uber, and if you're in the city, you'll get one in five to ten minutes. And that's good enough for a lot of people, but that's still pretty expensive compared to certainly compared to paying for riding transit or the marginal cost of a car if you already own the car. But most of that cost is labor. And so the, one of the things that autonomous vehicles does is eliminate the labor cost there. So the costs will be lower. And so instead of it being a $10 trip, it might be a $3 trip or $4 trip. And so it's still more than the marginal cost of driving your own car. But if you think about, well, should I own the car in the first place? you start to see that it becomes a lot easier not to own the car in the first place. Now, some of us you know, have given up our household cars or have given up our second cars in our household if we live in cities, but most people still will maintain at least one car per household because this system isn't as reliable as we'd like. But now, once you switch to, I can summon a car when I need it, and I'm paying $3, then you're, you're instead of asking the question, should I own the car, because I've already given up the car, the question is, should I make the trip? Is the trip worth $3? And when you think about that, you say, well, some trips are and some trips are. And it's like, well, no, I can ride transit for $1.75. I should do that. Or I can walk because it's only a few blocks and I'll do that. And so you think about your travel in a little bit different way. Getting from here to there, you know, is I think difficult. I guess the question is, where is this, is the network density going to be high enough that people can feel comfortable giving up their cars? And it's not just that you'd get, you know, like a car to go is a really small two seater car. And that's fine for some trips and short trips in the city. But if you're making a long trip with your family, that's not going to work. And so do you want to have to go through a process where you rent a large minivan? Okay, well, you know, you start going through the whole bureaucracy of doing that, signing up for the minivan, giving them all your driver's license information, your insurance information, the name of your firstborn, and all the kind of information that they're going to ask you. You've already spent 20 minutes or 30 minutes going through that process. 
if instead I'm already signed up to something and the minivan comes to the front of my house when I want it to, I can make that trip much more easily. And so we'll get to the point where in, in urban areas, we're going to switch from a car ownership model to a car rental model. And people give it this nice name, sharing, but it's really car rental. But it's a car rental that works for the 21st century with information technologies. The car comes to you. The car comes to you when you want it. It's essentially headache-free, and you don't have to drive it, so you don't have to learn the new car. The stress is a lot lower in that kind of thing. So you, you'll think about doing that as, a, as your regular transportation or your, you know, your regular periodic transportation. Now, you're not going to want to rent a car to go to work every day because that's probably going to be more expensive than the alternative. But for the side trips, that's really valuable. And if you're going to work in the city, you know, transit or walking or biking might work for you. And you, you might be able to give up the car entirely because you only needed the car for the shopping trips. And now the shopping trips that you make once a week can be made via the rental car, which is a lot cheaper than buying a car and making the monthly payment on it. And some of the large automakers see this and are moving in that direction. And there's obviously new entrants into the field that are moving in that direction. Google is looking that way. Uber is looking that way. And they are not traditionally in the automaking business. But in 10 years, I think the set of companies that are making automobiles will look different than it does today. And you know, just as the companies that are making cell phones today are different than the companies that made phones 10 years ago. I mean, we talk about Apple iPhones, which is the most popular model on the on the market and this is a company that wasn't making telephones 10 years ago what's going to what's the automobile market going to look like in 10 years is you know Volkswagen just announced that they're going to be you know making a major push into electric vehicles you know in response to the, all the problems that they had with their diesel cars people are seeing that the future is going to look different and they're trying to make changes in their way of doing things and some of these existing companies might survive and and make it through the transition and others won't in rural areas, if it's going to take you 10 minutes or 15 minutes for a car to be delivered to you instead of two minutes, you might decide that's too much time and you know you'll continue to own a car. And you'll own an autonomous car instead of a, a car that you drive yourself because that's still better, but it's different. And you'll think about travel more similar to the way you do today, except because it's an autonomous car, driving isn't as much of a headache. And so you don't have to think about the driving task, which means you can do something else while you're traveling. And if you can do something else while you're traveling, traveling isn't as onerous and you'll make longer trips. And so while in the city, when you start to think about paying for every trip, you might make fewer trips or you might make shorter trips in rural areas where you don't have to think about making the trip because you have the autonomous car that's doing the driving for you, you might be willing to make longer trips. And this is a kind of shift in our usage of technology that we can anticipate will occur the question would be how significant these shifts will be. We know that people who don't think about the driving task, people who ride on commuter trains, are willing to make longer trips than people who do because they can do something else while they're traveling. This is going to become a, a more common pattern, you know, this the substitution of activity useful activity while you're in the vehicle. You know, you're not just listening to the radio, but doing work or doing entertainment, but doing entertainment in a, a high quality way instead of a low quality way. You know, the, the windshield will become a heads up display and the heads up display can, you know, show the cars in front of you, but it can also project a movie in front of that. And so you're driving along the highway, you're watching a movie, you know, you can see the cars in front of you if you want and driving's not so bad. So you've got these different shifts going on. How it plays out, what's the net of this is very hard to say. 
but we need to be thinking about these questions as we're planning the future. But in any case, because it's an autonomous vehicle, it can use the road space much, much more efficiently than we do now. Two ways. One is following the car in front of it closer. So right now, you know, you may have been taught in driving school to follow the car ahead of you at two seconds. People don't actually do that in congested conditions, but if you were taught that, that means there's 1,800 vehicles per hour per lane on the road. If instead you follow at one second because the vehicle's reaction time is so much, so much faster, we can get up to 3,600 vehicles per hour per lane. That doubles your capacity. You could probably get less than a one second following distance because you can, and the car will be able to anticipate what the cars in front of it are going to do. It'll brake as soon as the car in front of it slams on its brakes. If, you know, should that occur? And they'll be better at anticipating risks and that kind of thing. But we also have these 12 foot lanes, these 13 foot lanes on freeways sometimes for cars that are six feet wide. And why do we do that? Well, we do that because human drivers are terrible. And they're, they're absolutely terrible. And they can't stay in their six-foot lane. They need a, a wider lane in order to drive at the speeds at which we're um, expecting them to drive. Well, if you were to get that 12-foot lane just for the, you know, to make the math simple down to a six-foot lane, you've again doubled your capacity. Now, you might want it to be seven feet or eight feet. You, know, you might have smaller lanes for smaller cars and larger lanes for larger cars. And you can do that dynamically because the system will be much more intelligent than it is today. And cars will be able to negotiate with each other better. But you, you can sort of think about we should be able to quadruple our capacities on freeways and on you know arterials, places that are congested today. We can think about different vehicle forms. So today, people buy cars because of the you know sort of the rare trip where they're going to be carrying lots of people. So you buy a car for the road trip that's larger than you need for an everyday basis. Well, imagine instead you own the smallest car you need on an everyday basis and then you rent the car that you need for the long road trip. You know, we can switch to a one-person car, you know, basically an enclosed motorcycle, which is driven automatically, which is stable because, the, you know, they know how to stabilize these things if it's people driving them in a much better way. And those are only, you know, three or four feet wide. So we can get our lanes narrower still. Or we can have these half lanes for smaller vehicles. And all of these things are are not common today because humans are driving. But in the future where you have robots driving the vehicles with a lot more, better sensors and a lot faster reaction times, we can do a lot different things with, with vehicles than we do now. I mean, the term that we use in the book is a Cambrian explosion of vehicle types. You know, if you think about there's this, all these new opportunities and new possible designs that once you take away the human, the steering wheel, all the constraints that are associated with, with drivers today and replace them with um, the capacities of modern computers and modern computers not just using today's computers but modern computers using computers of 10, 20, 25 years from now, we should be able to do a lot better and use our road space more efficiently still, which means that we have a lot of excess roads and we shouldn't be building more if we're expecting excess we should be contracting the system, and we need to think about where can we contract the system most effectively. And we can't do it all at once, and we shouldn't do it all at once. The autonomous cars aren't here yet, so we should be anticipating that, but we shouldn't be you know, taking away capacity that's actually useful today. But we should be thinking about what do we replace, what's going to be important in 25 years, which isn't necessarily the same set of things that are important today. And you know, not expanding capacity that we know we're not going to need because we already built the most important things a long time ago. 
I want to ask you about transit because transit, you talk about a lot in the book and it's very provocative. Transit is one of these things today where it feels like we have two options given to us from a financing standpoint. We either have the huge, big, inflexible project or we have a very flexible system that has generally very poor service. How do you see transit changing and evolving as you know the end of traffic happens and, and we have a, a, a kind of a, a new transportation system? You can think about it from the sort of two directions. On the on the low end where you have these poorly used bus routes and demand responsive transit, paratransit types of systems, those can easily be replaced today, frankly, by ride sharing types of services. It would be more cost effective for many transit agencies to contract with Lyft and Uber to provide services than to be operating their own paratransit systems or to be operating the bus lines that don't carry very many passengers. And you have to remember that the average occupancy of a bus is on the order of seven, which means half the time it has fewer than seven people on board, which means that some of the time there's only one or two people on board. And if there's one or two people on board, it's a lot more efficient to, to do that as for, for all concerned for, from a cost perspective and from the user's time perspective to give people rides in taxis or Uber and, or Lyft or something like that than it is to be providing a fixed route service. And moving from here to there, there's a lot of institutional barriers, but people will eventually overcome the institutional barriers because the economics are so strong in that regard. On the other end, we have these services that are in high-demand corridors where you have a high frequency of service, and there's a lot of people who want to go from point A to point B, and transit is the most efficient. And providing this high-frequency service is where transit agencies should be focusing on, sort of this backbone network serving markets like you know, downtowns, downtown Minneapolis, and so on, where you know there's a lot of people every day who want to use that, especially if people have given up owning cars. People will want to be doing that on a, you know, will be using transit on their, for their daily work trip to the extent they're still going to work on a daily basis, and they'll be using rental services for their uh, random trips, for their infrequent trips for their irregular trips to places that are not well served by transit. And so that's the market, the high frequency market is where agencies should be focusing on. And those will tend to be in urban areas, you know, because that's where you have the density that people can walk up and, you know, they'll want to expect a transit vehicle coming by every five minutes or every three minutes. They don't want to have to walk up and wait 20 minutes or 30 minutes for a bus. Um, when the trip is less than 30 minutes long, they'll, you know, hire a taxi in, in a case like that. So, Getting to this, sort of this bifurcation where you have the taxi and, and um, shared ride services on the one hand and this backbone network on the other hand, I think is sort of the direction we should be going. And there's management issues and there's institutional issues that are necessary to confront in the U.S. And we don't do this very well here compared to just about every other country in the world. We don't contract out for services, which makes our bus services inflexible. And, you know, we don't think about, you know, other countries, you know, the UK or in Latin America um, or other parts of Europe that do this regular contracting are rethinking their network and sort of have these um, people who have incentives to rethink the network to better serve passengers, to get more customers. And how do you fix the network in a way that that's, you know, most appropriate? The incentives are there because you have some private sector involvement in a way that in the U.S., because everything is... Um, for lack of a better word, socialized, don't have that kind of incentives. And 
you know, the, the flip side of that is we probably have more labor protections in the U.S. than they do, you know, in some of these other countries. But if the demand is there for transit service, the labor protections aren't aren't as important because yes, there'll be demand for people to be providing these services, and that's a medium term thing. I mean, in the long term, just as cars get automated, transit's going to get automated, and you know, there are automated transit systems in the world. Um, we have an automated tram line at the, you know, two of them at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport, but we don't build our light rail lines as automated. You know, we still have drivers for those. Our buses are still um, require drivers. And that's going to be one of the last things to change because people still, you know, like to have the pilot in the cockpit, even if the pilot isn't actually doing anything with autopilot going on. We've obviously demonstrated we know how to fly drones remotely. You know, we can fly airplanes remotely. We'll be driving trucks remotely and eventually we'll be driving buses remotely. I mean, there'll be a control center and someone will be in the control center in case something weird happens. But, you know, most of the time these will be automated vehicles just like the cars are. I made a few of our mutual friends a little upset a while back when the green line opened up and I, I called it a transit strode, a billion dollar investment that didn't really move people all that quickly between Minneapolis and St. Paul. I mean, the, the, we require the green line to stop and wait for cars to go by, <laughs> you know, sit at traffic signals. And it also serves a bunch of stops where the development levels are not there to, to justify the investment. The argument to that is, well, we're gonna we're gonna get investment, Chuck. How would you look at the green line investment in the context of what you see as the changing landscape in transportation? Well, the green line is probably the best of the light rail investments in the Twin Cities region. There's no doubt. I totally agree. Uh, you know, so Keeping that in mind, it's connecting some major activity centers like St. Paul, um, downtown Minneapolis, the University of Minnesota, and there's a lot of development between those places as well. So, you know, the Green Line isn't isn't as bad as, say, the Green Line extension, the Southwest Light Rail, or the Blue Line extension, um, the Botno Line in the Twin Cities region, and other cities will have lines that are, you know, some of which are better than others. So, I'm not sure I'd characterize it as a strode. Does it have too many stations? I think there's some arguments perhaps that it does. Should it be getting priority at traffic lights? Most definitely it should be getting priority at traffic lights. And that's improved since it first opened, but it's still not perfect. And I think uh, traffic engineering friends are capable of doing better than they have. And it's sort of disappointing that they haven't done better. But, you know, there's institutional coordination issues. You know, you have Metro Transit versus City of Minneapolis Public Works or versus City of St. Paul Public Works. And... The, again, you've got these organizations that, that don't have the incentives to cooperate because it's not their time. You know, Metro Transit would like this, you know, because they, they could save some operating costs and they would look better. But what's the incentive for a traffic engineer to move the train rather than the cars? You know, the question is who, who gives them the most grief via the phone calls at the end of the day from the council member? You know, I mean, that's, that's the question that they have to answer. And, you know, are they going to get more angry calls from cars that are stuck at traffic lights? Or are they going to get more angry calls from light rail passengers stuck at a traffic light? And they make those calculations for themselves. But they don't have any incentive. They're not given a reward for minimizing person delay. There's, there's ways of, of incentivizing people that we don't do and that we should. And I'm not sure that that's the best thing to do. But I mean, that's, you know, because then you've got questions about safety and those kinds of things. You want to balance these things out. But... You need to, what are people's motivations is part of the problem in those kinds of 
traffic engineering questions. I mean, if you're a traffic engineer, you want peace. You know, you want everyone to be happy because that gives you the least amount of grief. And, you know, you're thinking about sort of a, it's a grief minimization problem. The people who are riding the, the trains and the buses need to give more grief to the traffic engineers in order to get, to get their concerns heard. The squeaky wheel gets the grease type of thing is going on. There's opportunities for more cost-effective investments in the, the arterial BRT system that's slowly being deployed in the Twin Cities. The A-Line along Snelling Avenue, for instance, which is going to do things to make buses operate more like we conventionally operate trains, you know, where you have prepayment and you have all-door boarding, which will speed up the boarding process significantly, um, which means that we can get more productivity out of our buses and we can save time for our riders. Those kinds of things we can do more systematically through our transit systems in the U.S. than we do. And I'm glad to see it starting. I wish it would happen more quickly because I think that for a dollar invested, you're moving a lot more people on an arterial BRT type of system than you would be on a Southwest light rail moving people from the suburbs to downtown. Why aren't those investments happening? It seems like the people, the users would like that. Is it just political momentum behind like the big, big project or is it not sexy enough to, to do the BRT? What's, what do you think? Well, I, I, it's hard to say. I'm sure if you looked at, at real estate markets, that would be part of your answer. Somebody is pushing yeah. Southwest LRT. They're not doing it publicly, but somebody is pushing the Southwest LRT. And you can imagine that someone will benefit from increased real estate values once construction starts on that. And you can look at the landholders along the Southwest LRT and probably figure out who that is. Sure. So they're advocating for that. And no one's advocating against it except that it costs a lot of money. I mean, so there's, you know, people in the blogging community saying, well, this isn't our best investment, but no one says that, you know, sort of if the money rained from heaven, you shouldn't build this because if the money rained from heaven, you should do everything. <laughs> it's, a, it's a question of these right. trade-offs. Right. And bus riders are not well organized. We have, you know, an automobile association that, that lobbies in a way on behalf of motorists. And we have a well-funded road building lobby, which, you know, is happy to construct an arterial BRT as much as anything else. I mean, they just want the construction projects. There's going to be some real estate benefits from the arterial BRT, but they're not going to be nearly as concentrated because the time savings are relatively small and it's not as visible type of a project. So you're not going to get as much lobbying for that behind the scenes. There's, you know, the reputation. We've managed buses so poorly over the last 50 years, 60 years, that Bus, people don't imagine themselves, people who are in power don't imagine themselves riding the bus, but they do imagine themselves riding the train. Right. And that's because the train is new and the bus is old. And it used to be the other way around. In the 1950s, the bus was new and the train was old. And you go to New York, you know, the train is old. Um, and you go to London, the train was old and they just put billions and billions of pounds into making it new again. But people who would ride the, the double decker buses in London wouldn't ride a metro transit bus. Right. The bus buses. But it's a different context. We've done a terrible job of marketing the bus, and hopefully the arterial BRT system starts to reverse that in the Twin Cities, and other types of investments do that elsewhere. But you know, there's a lot of things that are that are called BRT, which aren't, you know, which are buses, but they're not rapid. And so there's this sort of the question of misleading, and then there's sort of these freeway BRT systems like the Red Line down in the southern suburbs of the Twin Cities which just don't carry a lot of people, you know. The service is okay for what it is, but it just doesn't carry a lot of people. And so, you know, from a cost-effectiveness perspective, it really does depend on what markets you're serving. 
we have these political structures which require spatial allocation of resources, right? If you've got people from five counties paying taxes to support your transit system, people from five counties are going to see projects in their, in their jurisdictions. That means that bad projects are going to get funded as well as good projects. And so instead of funding this from people via sales taxes, if we could somehow get to the point where we could fund it from users or, you know, capitalists banking on future revenue from future users, then we would be getting better projects. But because it depends upon government funding now, and it has to, because without the government funding, it wouldn't operate at all, with these bad projects, which, you know, make the economics worse and worse. Getting to a point of buses being self-sustaining, I think, is hard. I think it can be done in specific routes, but I don't think people are willing to make those political decisions. And it would require the automobile being more expensive, making the automobile more expensive, putting in place road pricing where your people are paying for more for congested times and less for uncongested times, where people are paying for pollution externalities as well as um, congestion externalities and crash externalities. Getting to that point is obviously politically difficult. Nobody wants their taxes to be raised, even if they're paying for it out of another pocket. I mean, all of these costs are being paid for. Pollution is being paid for in our society. It's just being paid for out of the healthcare pocket instead of being paid for out of the transportation pocket. Right. Um, crashes are being paid for. They're being paid for in advance by insurance rather than being paid after the fact by the people who caused the crash. And they get sort of, well, their, rate, their premiums go up. So there's sort of right. this indirect feedback mechanism. But yeah. everyone pays for congestion, but you pay for it by wasting your time rather than paying for it out of money. And the wasting your time means that you earn less money or you have less free time with your family or whatever, but it's wasting your time. So until we get the funding situation straightened out, um, the system is going to be a bit of a mess. But if we can get technology to help us improve how we use the system, um, if they can, technology can drive down costs, you know, for instance, if we can reduce labor costs and transportation, we can get to a better situation even without getting the politics sorted out the way we might like them to be, without getting the funding sorted out the way we might like it to be. Right. You blog at transportationist.org. I want to give you a chance just before we close here to talk a little bit about Streets MN. You were involved in that from the very start. I want you to describe what it is because why would a bunch of geeky transportation people writing about city streets and roads and transit attract such a broad audience? But you really have. Can you just talk a little bit about what's gone on at Streets MN? And I really want this to be a, a model that kind of inspires other people too, because it's a it's a brilliant conversation that you all are having. Uh, about four years ago, you know, I was looking at various websites on the internet, and I follow Greater Greater Washington, which is a blog about things that are happening in the Washington D.C. region, and has a number of authors and you know, had a decent readership. I sent an email out to some of the transportation bloggers, including you in the, in the Minnesota area and said, we should have this. And then we didn't all know each other yet. And so we set up a meeting, I guess it was at Antonio Rosell's offices in Minneapolis. And we all agreed that we should set up something. And we eventually decided to call it streets.mn. And we launched it you know, January, officially January 1st, 2012, I think as everybody would write one article every other week. And I think that's how we set it up. And there'd be 10 of us, and so it'd be one article per day. So we had a schedule. And, you know, our first month, we had 
10,000 page views, less than 10,000 page views and the 7,000 8,000 page views. And it was like, well, this is really better than we're doing on our existing blogs. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and we were happy with that. And so it's like, you know, it was going along. And so we, you know, some days people wouldn't meet their schedule and, you know, sometimes we have, you know, and so I can write off, off my schedule. I say, well, we should maybe add some more writers. And so we invited some additional people to be writing for us. And slowly, you know, over three years, the site's grown. And the last few months, we've been getting about 100,000 page views a month. And so we're doing really well. And the idea is to have this conversation about transportation and land use focused on Minnesota. And we were all writing about transportation. It would be great if there were more people writing about land use issues. But there are, you know, there are fewer people blogging about that, I guess. Yeah. It's one of these, it's like a city. I mean, it's a positive feedback system. You know, the more people who are writing for it, the more people who read it, and the more people who read it, the more people who want to write for it because you get this audience. Right. And you find you're creating this place for this conversation to happen. And we started off with, I think, some pretty bright people writing good articles in a relatively objective way. I mean, there's been, you know, some yeah. people get excited from time to time, but, um, you know, I think it's, Pretty good writers writing fact-based articles. You know, there's obviously opinions as well, but it tends to be fact-based. This was a void that we didn't have in our region. Other regions, you know, had a couple of other regions had this kind of thing. And, you know, we're, we're Minnesotans, so we're, you know, more literate than the average American. And you know, <laughs> we write more and we read more. And, in, you know, it's still too Minneapolis-focused. But Minneapolis is very interested in these issues and we see the world changing and we see how the world can change. And so, you know, sort of the fact that the world is changing gives us hope that the world can change in a better way. We can post ideas and slowly, eventually, some of them actually filter up and become, become implemented. Um, you know, I've, I've been railing about the poor state of bus stop signs in the Twin Cities for a few years, um, from before streets.mn, but also on streets.mn. For those of you who are not familiar with the bus stop signs in the Twin Cities, they say bus stop, which is better than them not saying bus stop because then you wouldn't know where the bus stopped at all. But it doesn't tell you a lot of information about which bus stops there, where does the bus go, when does it run, how frequent is it, those kinds of things, which you might want to know. And if you've been to other large cities, you've seen those kinds of things. And Metro Transit finally agreed to deploy this Metro-wide. And there was an article in the Star Tribune yesterday that they're going to be rolling this out over the next two years to all 12,000 bus stops in the Twin Cities. I think that's something that we raised that as an issue, and that's actually gotten some resources devoted to it. And so that's, that's rewarding. I think the issue we talked about before about the green line stopping at traffic lights, we were complaining about that before anybody else. And you know, we created a point where people could think about this issue and think, yes, it can be done better. And, you know, to contact public officials and public officials read this site too. And I mean, we know that. And they sometimes comment. They usually don't comment, but they'll sometimes even comment that we can get some real, real change. And some of them are small. Um, you know, we've railed about the Southwest LRT not being a good investment. That's probably still going to happen despite our complaints. You know, we, we don't have the power of that can stop a $1.7 billion project, but we can make people think differently about what we should be doing instead. And I think over time will make a difference in that regard. You've blogged on it before yourself. Um, I guess you've gotten distracted with all of this, the Strong Towns work, which is you know great. Yeah. I'm a proud Strong Towns member myself. I thank you for that. Yes. And you know that I'm sure keeps you very very busy. Streets.mn is is 
as an organization is not political. It's a forum. The authors have beliefs about policies, but you know, we don't endorse political candidates and um, the site itself doesn't endorse particular policies. We just want people to be able to discuss the issues in, in an objective, adult, mature way. I made a comment on Twitter last week. Uh, you know, streetstop.mn is basically the only comment section on the internet you should read. Um, <laughs> right. That, it's very true. Yes. I, and I always do read the comments. And the, the comments there are, are worthwhile. They're and you know, there's a little bit of policing, but, you know, not as much as in other places. And, and we have good readers. We have smart people. I mean, you know, to actually get through and want to read an article that's talking about, you know, the minutia of traffic signal design and then make a comment about it, you're probably reasonably intelligent, reasonably mature in the first place. So, you know, we've filtered out a lot of the cruft and yeah. a lot of the trolls, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so I'm happy with, with how the site's developed over the last few years. And we're on this growth trajectory. You know, we were talking about S-curves earlier. You know, we're on this growth trajectory. It's not going to become the only site on the Internet in 50 years, which would be an interesting outcome. But, you know, it will – growth will, will rise and rise, and then it will start rising at a slower and slower rate, and it will level off, and then – Maybe there'll be something else that replaces blogs in 10 years or 20 years or who knows. Yeah. These technologies change. I mean, blogs, 15 years ago, there weren't such a thing as blogs really. Um, you know, right. and I guess nominally they existed, but they weren't widespread. People are talking about peak blog and the death of blogs and, you know, we're still growing. So it's not, not us, but, you know, group blogs are different than individual blogs. Now it's the best place to be to talk about transport and land use. Yeah. And we, you know, we merged with the Urban MSP forums, which were a discussion forum for similar types of issues. And so yep. it was mostly the same people just talking in two different places. So, right. And there was a little bit of grumbling about that. And people accepted it. Over the few, next few years, you know, we'll upgrade the website and we'll do wonderful things. And um, it's important if you're interested in these issues, you, you write, you comment. If you want to be a writer, contact the board and you have something good to say, we'll make you a writer. Yeah. I wanted to say congratulations on it because I, I know this was something that started small and there've been a lot of people who have contributed a lot of time. And really from my vantage point, I see it having a, a major impact on the conversation. I mean, the level of discourse, whether it's in the statewide newspaper, the Star Tribune, which tends to be the, the newspaper of record here in Minnesota, or whether it's a place like Minnesota Public Radio or, you know, MinPost or what have you. I see you guys' stuff getting picked up. I see it being referenced. And, and more importantly, I see it being repeated as if it's a fait accompli sometimes where really these were ideas that were hatched or originally kind of enunciated on Streets MN. So it's a great service and I'm really happy you're doing it. And I just want to congratulate you on the success. Well, thank you. And thanks for your support. The book the End of Traffic and the Future of Transport, David Levinson and Kevin Kreisick. Professor Levinson, you're still my favorite professor. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor. I, uh, I feel very grateful having been able to uh, take a couple classes with you. So we, we had a good time, and, and I'm, I'm glad we're friends, and I thank you for being a member. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Fire what? Yeah. Trap!
They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Get on a bus and then go to your terminal and check in. I was late and I was worried about missing my flight. So I knew I had no time to do any of that. So I just, I never did this before. I just drove my car right to the terminal and just left it there. <laughs> and I got on the plane. And once I was on the plane and I had a little moment, I called Hertz and I said, hey, listen, your car is sitting out in front of Terminal 4 and the keys are in it. So that's where it is. And the guy's like, you can't do that. You have to return it to this location and then get, and I go, well, I didn't do that already. And now I'm leaving California. So if you want your car, you need to go to that place where it is. And he was like, oh, Jesus, man. All right, we'll get it. And he, that was the end of it. And I realized I could do this every time. Every time.